How many of you have, are familiar with or have read the book, The Purpose Driven Life? Some of you have. Uh, it's written by a, a pastor named Rick Warren. He is a, a pastor in uh, the San Diego area, Southern California. He's uh, in charge of a megachurch. Um, I, have, I have an enormous amount of respect for him. Um, a lot of nationally known megachurch pastors have had failures, uh, moral failures and, or, or scandals or something going on where they had to leave their position. And that's, that's, very, that's very sad whenever that happens, big church or small. Um, Rick has maintained his integrity, and, uh, and he doesn't do that easily. Uh, for example, one of the things he does is um, he's made a lot of money on books, and he, whatever money he gets from books and, and, and the, the things that go with the books, workbooks and manuals and all kinds of things, he has always done a reverse tithe. So in other words, whatever he got from it, 90% of it will go back to the Lord's work, and he, he keep the 10%. He was so successful that he didn't even need the 10%, and so he gives it all away now. And he's done that for... Oh, wow, it's probably going on 40 years. And uh, so I, I really i am thankful for him. Well, if you were to read his book, The Purpose Driven Life, and there's one also called The Purpose Driven Church based on the same principles, you'll see, um, you'll see this. Yeah, how do I get there? You'll see this shape. It's an acrostic, S-H-A-P-E. And... I'm going to use that today, that word shape, but I just wanted to tell you what, how he defined this, okay? Because if we all, we all have a purpose that God has called us into this world for, but we're all different. We all have a shape about us, and God uses our uniqueness in his kingdom. And, and what, what the components of the shape that we all have is spiritual gifts, that's the S, our heart and the condition of our heart in painful and sinful ways, but also in, in good ways, but we all have a heart that's affected. Um, you have abilities that you have that, which may or may not coincide with your spiritual gifts. There's certain things that you can do well and other people can't. We all understand that. You have a personality. You are you. You have tendencies, whether you are um, introverted or extroverted, whether you're task-oriented or people-oriented or so many other components that make you unique. And then we also have experiences that happen to us in our lives, things that, that we decided to do and to take on, things that came to us, and quite often things we didn't want to happen. All of that is part of you. So today, if I were to say, what shape are you in? <laughs> You might say, well, I'm not, I'm not so bad for the shape that I'm in, but what, what you are on this moment of the, the 5th of June in 2022 is, has been shaped by these factors, okay? What I want us to see today is that in, in helping us to deal with other people, especially when it's very challenging to do so, we have to recognize that every person has a shape, and there's a whole lot that went into making that shape happen. And that shape is always unavoidably impacted by other people. 
You don't just decide who you're going to be isolated from everyone else. This is my life, this is my path, it's my choices, that's it. As if you can you know, live on that island somewhere and just be you. The shape that you are is unavoidably impacted by other people. And if you're married, you know that real fast, okay? But there's, it's not just that relationship. It's all of our relationships. So with that in mind, now we're going to go to the, the fifth chapter of Matthew. This is the beginning of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus goes on here for three full chapters. It's the longest sermon in, in Scripture from Jesus. And he talks about a whole lot of things. He begins the fifth chapter with, with what is known as the Beatitudes, uh, how, to, how to think differently, what, how to really honor God, um, what, what, what God looks for in people. And then he talks about salt and light and how to make a difference in the world. But I'm going to pick it up at the, at the 17th verse, and we're going to touch on the rest of this fifth chapter. And what he's doing in this section of Matthew 5, of, of this Sermon on the Mount, he says he, he kind of transitions into this, this topic in the 17th verse. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, if you're in this audience that he's preaching to, you were Jewish by birth, and you understood from the time you could learn anything and understand anything, you were taught the law of Moses and how to obey God through this law. And you had teachers of the law and rabbis. You had Pharisees and Sadducees that would have a very watchful eye to a very oppressive extent over the community to make sure that everyone's falling in line because we want everybody to be following God by obeying the rules. So now I think most people understood that, well, these are our teachers, but sometimes those teachers aren't exactly obeying the rules themselves, but you can't challenge them because they have a lot of authority. So Jesus is, is, is calling out some of this hypocrisy, this, this injustice, this oppression. But he's also teaching something even bigger, that he has come not to get rid of the law, but to fulfill it. What Jesus wasn't going to do, what God didn't send him to do, was to come down and be another cheerleader for God and say, all right, everybody, try harder. You can do this. Your forefathers and ancestors failed at obeying these rules. But I'm here to tell you, you got this. And just be a motivational speaker and you know, help them all to achieve what they could never do before. And that was to fully obey the law. No, he's going the other way. He's basically saying in this section of scripture that, no matter how hard you try, you're going to fall. And because here in God's eyes is what failure looks like. It's not just the surface stuff, okay? Now, this is important when you read these passages because some of these verses have some very controversial elements to them and sometimes um, misquoted and misused, uh, misapplied. So understand that as, as, we, as we go forward here. The bookends of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount are from the 20th verse to the 48th verse of chapter 5. This is the section where you'll see this. He continually says, 
you have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. And he's going down some of the common understandings of the law. You might say conventional wisdom about the law of Moses. Here's what everybody knows, and I'm reminding you of it. But let's go a little deeper. Let's get past the surface. Let's go beyond the Pharisees. So he says at the 20th verse, then, as he enters into this discussion, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So if your basis of right relationship with God is, is purity in terms of 100% obedience, well, you're going you're gonna to fail you're going to have to do even better than your teachers. You're going to have to do even better than those Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now, many of them were corrupt, but not all of them were. Some of them really sincerely believed this and did their best. So even if they were looking at the Pharisees who still had integrity, Jesus is saying, you have to do even better than that. Wow. Is that what you're going, is that what you're going with this, Jesus? And then he wraps it up. He goes even higher. At the end of this dialogue, he says in the 48th verse, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So if your standard is, I'm going to make my own way to God by being good enough for God, by being a, a rule keeper, then you have to do it as perfectly as God does. Now, Jesus is is coming into this saying he is not abolishing this, he is fulfilling it in himself. And he would go to the cross for us and the whole basis of the relationship with God and humanity through him was about to change. It wasn't based on rules and rule keeping anymore. It was based on love, forgiveness, and faith. And that was new, and that was different. So Jesus is beginning to teach that. So we'll begin here in the, the 21st verse. And here's this first of the you've heard it says. You've heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is, an, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering a gift, you're offering your gift at the altar, remember there that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together. On the way, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, there's a lot of nuance in that that, that only that audience understood, but Raqqa was basically a, a deep insult. And, and, and these, these court proceedings, that was a common thing to try and work it out on the way. That's really true today, too. You do a, do a plea bargain before it goes to the judge, that kind of thing. But um, what Christ is getting across here is it's not enough that you've never killed someone. If you hate them and said hateful things, that's just as bad. Now, take that truth, that deep truth, 
And ask yourself, first of all, have I had moments of hate and anger in my life? Maybe I have those right now. I don't know. But where am I at with, with hate and anger? And, and here's, the, here's the, the first part of the question. How has that shaped you in the past? How is that shaping you now? Where hopefully you've been remorseful of it, and hopefully you've been able to reconcile with the person that you, that you hurt, that you insulted in some way. Or let's flip, flip it the other way. How many times in your life have you been the victim of the hateful word, that the, the anger was directed at you? What has that done to you? And, and what we're, we're doing in these, in these passages today is we're not looking for someone to blame. We're not looking for excuses and to, and to rationalize anything. What I'm saying here today is that you are shaped by these kind of experiences in your life. And you have shaped others in negative ways and in positive ways. And, and what we need to do is to come to, to, to come before God and before one another in, in a sense of honesty about it. Yeah, this happened to me and it hurt and, and this is how it changed me. For example, if, and, and modern psychology does, does, a, does a phenomenal job in identifying how childhood experiences can stick with us and do stick with us. Um, and and if, if they're painful ones, that, that pain can linger and... and um, for a long time and it affect us, that helps shape you. If you were bullied as a kid, did you draw back and maybe become a little bit more isolated? Maybe you became something of a loner? Not that being a loner is a wrong thing. Some people are people. people. Other people like to be by themselves somewhat more and a little quieter. That's okay, but, but how? What, what things happen to you if anything, that, that kind of drew you in that direction, okay? This is, this is the kind of thing we're looking at today. What's happened to you that has shaped you? What have you done, good or bad, in your life that has affected others? Be honest about it with yourself and God. Be open about it. Uh, has sexual sin shaped you? Verse 27, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is hyperbole on Jesus' part, but it goes back to, remember what I said a couple of moments ago about the overall context of this section of the sermon that he's preaching. If this is your standard, here's what you have to do to meet the standard. So if you have a lustful eye, well, pluck it out because that's going to be enough for you to no longer be righteous enough before God. Or something that your hand has touched. Cut it off because that's going to keep you away. If that's your standard, if that's what you think is going to get things right, that's what you got to do. And of course, Jesus didn't literally mean that, but he is teaching something at a deeper level. In this case, about 
sexual sin, about adultery. And at the time of Christ, there wasn't these computers in our pockets that have um, the ability to bring up all kinds of information and, and to communicate with people literally around the world. People couldn't even imagine such a thing in Jesus' day. And also on that wonderful device that you have in your hand or in your laptop computer, or anyone still have desktop computers at the house? I do. I, I, <laughs> I like leaving it there. I, I try and leave the internet there. That, that, that's why I still have a flip phone, because I don't want the internet chasing me around the planet, okay? Um, that's my choice, okay? No judgment on your part. That's just how I handle it. Um, but there's stuff we can get to no matter how you have access to the internet that we know is harmful. The, the, the ease of which you can get to pornographic images is downright frightening when you realize how much damage that does to people. And, and I'm, I'm male. Now, this is more of a male problem, not exclusively, but I know what it is to struggle with that, that desire to look at those pictures or those movies and... And, and that's difficult. And don't think because I'm a pastor, I, I somehow stopped being tempted. A recent survey of pastors done anonymously, and even there, I wonder how many of them were honest, of evangelical pastors, uh, one-third of them struggle with pornography. One-third of evangelical pastors. Okay? Does that surprise you? It shouldn't. What happened this week in the Southern Baptist Convention with hiding child abuse by some of the same people who were ripping the Catholics for doing the same thing over the last few decades? It's there. This is what I'm saying. Not to cast judgment, not to say, oh, those lousy, rotten Baptists. But it's just to say, yeah, this is there and it hurts. And we, and we can't deal with it until we're honest about it. And, and, and if this is something that you're struggling with, then you know, find a way to get some help with it. And I'll help you with that. Because as I said, I know what it is to struggle with lust. All right? So let's, let's be open and honest enough and help one another through these kind of circumstances because it shapes you. And you know what else shapes you on the positive side? When, when, when you live a life of, of integrity, when you carry out your life in terms of your marriage relationship in a way that honors God, that your, your, your example before others helps to shape them in a better way because they see, hey, it is possible. You know, I'm not going to boast about it, but I'm glad that I'm married to Linda for 35 years in two weeks. <laughs> I'm so glad for that. And, and if our lives have, in any smallest way, helped people see, you know, See God in us, not perfection in us, but to see God in us. Great, I can help shape them too. There's other ways that we are shaped that Jesus is pointing out. How about divorce? That's the next one, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a 
a divorced woman commits adultery. This is one of these passages that is ripped out of context and thrown in front of people to, to condemn them about divorce. And this is not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, if your standard is perfection, then here's, here's how God's going to see it. That's what he's talking about. There was loopholes in the law of Moses that many people in Jesus' day walked gladly right through in order to get a divorce. And by the way, it was the men because they held, they held the power. There was very little opportunity for the woman to enact these loopholes. It was the men. And so they did that, and they thought, see, I'm still obeying the law of Moses because here we have, you know, an example in the law of Moses where you can get divorced and uh, a way around the rules. And Jesus is saying, no, it's a whole lot deeper than that. Don't you get it? Don't you understand? Jesus wasn't saying, I condemn divorce. Jesus is saying, he, what, what he's condemning here is, is, is to, to use it almost flippantly like it didn't matter. I, I've done probably 60 or 70 weddings over the years as a pastor. And you know what's never happened in, in planning for the wedding or do any counseling I might do with a couple? No one's ever come to me and said, as we're sitting down in my office, hey, um, we're, we're happy now, but we really don't think this is going to last more than five years. Six tops. Never had that couple yet. Okay. I guess some people get uh, prenuptial agreements. Um, I, I think that's a bad idea. You're sort of saying from the start, this isn't going to work. Um, but no, people come, they get married, they're happy, they want to live their lives together. And what happens? Life happens. Hurt happens. And that's what I'm getting to here is what, it's not to be condemned or feel condemned about divorce. It's to say it happened and to be honest, that yeah, it hurt, and that hurt impacted me. That hurt shaped me in one way or another. And that hurt shaped my kids, if there's kids involved, in one way or the other. And, and, and we, you don't deny it. You don't pretend it's not there. But you don't also you know, kick yourself for the rest of your life. You just say... That happened, and, and, and asked this question, is, does God still love you there? Absolutely. Does God still love you there when you find yourself in that lustful moment? You know, looking at stupid pictures on the internet. Yes, he does. Does God still love you when, you, when you've said that angry word and you let the hate out? Yes, he does. But when, in all of those situations, and the others we're going to look at in a moment, it's it's a question of, are you honest with yourself about that? And can you even look deeper at what it has done to you and what it's still doing to you that you can maybe chart a better course forward? And just as importantly, to help others who are walking the same path or a similar path as you. That's the gospel. It's not that we act perfect. It's that we are open about our broken condition, and we help each other along the way. The Christian walk has a limp in it. I know what a limp is. Right now, I have a knee that has no cartilage. I have a right toe that 
uh, excuse me, my left foot, the big toe is, is so filled with junk and it has to get, not, not infected, uh, but uh, bone spurs that it hurts. And now the heel's bad <laughs> on that same foot. I'm limping all over the place. And that's how our walk with God should be in the sense of I don't walk perfectly. I don't strut. Look at me. I have the perfect step. No, it's more like, come on, guys. We got this. Come on. Oh, you're limping too? Yeah, let's help each other. Let's limp together. Amen? Isn't that where we're supposed to be as the church? We're limpers. But the problem is you got people sitting back there. Ah, look at them. Limpers going by. I ain't one of them. No, sir. Because they're afraid to get up because their foot really hurts. And they, they start walking. People are going to see that they limp too. It's a whole lot easier to cast aspersions, to cast accusation, to cast judgment than it is to look back in the mirror and say, wow, that's me too. Let's go together. Let's work on it together. This is the message of this part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Have you broken, how have broken promises shaped you? Verse 33, again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear on oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. You know someone in your life that is struggling maybe even in an addiction or something like that, and they've had another bad moment. And they'll say to you, oh, I swear I'll never do it again. And in that moment, you want to believe him. You want to believe her. But you've walked this before. And he or she, in that moment, really does have the right desire, but it's not going to change anything by itself. Broken promises hurt. Anybody remember the movie Hook from the 1990s? It was a, a movie about Peter Pan. Robin Williams played grown-up Peter Pan. And in that story, um, Peter Pan uh, was in the real world. He wasn't in Neverland anymore. And he was a lawyer in California. And he was a very successful lawyer at that. And he had forgotten that he ever was Peter Pan as a boy, completely. And he had his own children. Well, Captain Hook wanted Peter Pan back in Neverland. So he came into the real world and abducted Peter Pan's children, took them back to Neverland. To, to, you know, motivate Peter to come back so he could have another battle with him with a sword, okay? That's the gist of the story is, is, is you know, Peter Pan, a grown-up Peter Pan going back and, and remembering who he was, all right? Now, the heart of the story is really the relationship between this grown-up Peter Pan and his own children, and the movie begins, and if you haven't seen it yet, I'm sorry, but I don't have to apologize for spoiler alerts after 30 years, okay? But 
the, the, the movie begins with, with a baseball game, and the son's playing the baseball game, and that's a big game. And his dad's too busy at work with his big, important lawyer job and misses the game again. And apparently this was a pattern. He broke his promise again and again. Next time, son, I'll be there. Next time. And the son just had, had enough of it. And, and after that, he's abducted by Captain Hook, and the story's off and running. And, and it's a great family movie on many levels. There's a whole lot of great stuff in that film. But broken promises is what I wanted to emphasize there, is, is the pain of it. And again, whether you were the one who broke the promise or whether you were the recipient of the break, that shapes you. That's part of you. Be honest about it. Be open about it. And then last, uh, not quite last, well, two more. How has revenge shaped you? Verse 38, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you or take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It's interesting the flow of these different rules too. He, he goes from, from adultery to divorce, which often coincide, then to the whole idea of broken promises. Then he goes into what happens when someone broke your promise or hurt you deeply or said the thing they shouldn't have. You want to get even. You want to inflict some kind of revenge upon them. And so if you have carried that out, did it help? Did, did it really feel as good as you hoped it would if you somehow brought the him or her down? If you did or said something that, that you know got to them, did that make you better? Did it make anything better? I think we know it didn't. It, it, it's actually a very empty feeling when it's all said and done. But there's another level to this. Hopefully you haven't done that or been the recipient of someone who wanted to enact some form of revenge. I mean, the, the kind of stuff movies are made out of, you know, especially the ones on Lifetime Channel. There's always somebody getting to somebody. You know? <laughs> but what about... The person you, you maybe you, you might have fantasized about, yeah, well, I can't do that. That's, that's crazy. I don't want to get arrested. <laughs> that, that won't look good, whatever. But when something bad happens, do you think, yes. You didn't have to do it, but you kind of celebrate their downside, their, their, their bad day. Yeah. Oh, they had it coming. Good. That's the same thing because it's at the heart level. And so here, here again, are we, what does that do to us when we think like that? How does that shape us, continue to shape us? And if you were the victim of such a thing, how does that shape and affect you? And the last one, how have your enemies shaped you? Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. 
He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? And then there's that wrap-up verse of the whole section. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Enemies. Um, what is an enemy to you? And we, when we look in today's very, very broken and violent political arena, enemies are all over the place. I mean, that's how you win, right? You, do, you find out who's on your side, you find out who's on the other side, and you make them look bad. And you label them an enemy, and you label them no good, and you label them as, as, as someone that isn't capable of anything good. And then it becomes this thing of, 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 of righteousness somehow, that, that you're on the right side, and God is with you because those enemies over there, and that doesn't help. This isn't what, what God wants us to be and to become. In the middle of this last section that I read, he talks about the, the sun shines on everybody, the rain falls on everybody. What's Jesus getting across there? We're all somebody's enemy if we let it be. We're, we're, we're all in enmity with other people if we choose these paths of some kind of surface self-righteousness that I have earned something from God and therefore God owes me something and I'm on his side and anyone who doesn't see things the way I see them is therefore not worthy of God and I can rightly hate them. Now, there is no such thing in God's eyes, but this is what happens when we don't love our enemies. That's hard. And I don't mean just politically. I mean just people that are just downright nasty. In the eighth chapter of Matthew, after this three-chapter sermon of Jesus... The next two things that happens, Jesus backs up his words with actions. So he's not just not talking about, hey, go out there and love your enemies, everybody. Hey, go out there and just you know, obey the rules and get to the heart of the matter, and, which is all wonderful. But if he doesn't, doesn't live out what he just said, then he's just another you know, powerful speaker who doesn't back it up. First thing that happens after the Sermon on the Mount, there is the faith of, excuse me, there is a, a man who has leprosy that Jesus heals. He disobeys the law of Moses by touching someone with an infectious skin disease called leprosy. That alone would have had Jesus pushed out of the community for a minimum of two weeks until the high priest approved him coming back. And knowing that high priest, they would have never let Jesus back. Except one different thing happened. The man who was diseased was now healed. And they couldn't say a word. But what's Jesus doing? He's backing up his action. 
that person that no one else touches, that everyone else yells at, get out of here, you're going to make us all sick, and are literally pushed to the edges of, of the society, he goes right to them and touches them. And if that wasn't enough, the next thing that happens is a Roman centurion, the hated Romans, that oppressive army, if there ever was an enemy, that's it. Those Romans. And a soldier comes to him the symbol of that oppression before his people and humbly comes to Jesus, says, I have a servant who's like a son to me. He's sick. Master, would you please heal him? And if you remember the story, Jesus said, yeah, I'll go with you. Where's No, don't go. I'm a, I'm a commander, and if I give an order, I know it's going to be done. You give the word, it's done. And Jesus was amazed at his faith. You know, all the times in the Gospels, there, there's that word amaze, where it's usually about people are amazed at, at the, the miracle that Jesus did. They're amazed about the demon being cast out. They're often amazed at his teaching. They're amazed, amazed, amazed. This is one of the few times Jesus uses the word amazed. Or it's about Jesus. Amazed at this man's faith and here's the centurion. There's the enemy. There's the oppressor. Hmm. That would be like... Pick your candidate from either party, just in your own mind, for president. And there's a big rally. And in that rally, among all the supporters, all the people who are yelling for that candidate... There's one that is on the other side and has their little sign, anti this candidate, pro the other guy. So that candidate goes down to that person and said, I'm glad you're here today, and I'm glad you're expressing your, your freedom of speech and, and politics in our country, and, and um, you know, God bless you, sir, and goes back. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> That's the equivalent of what Jesus was doing, even more so. This was the enemy who came to him. And he helped him. And then all of these ways I mentioned from this passage about the things that shape us at the heart level, beyond the surface you heard it said, the, the, the conventional wisdom. Go beyond that, get to the heart. And there's a lot of pain that I dredged up, probably, in, in a lot of us today. And, but there's also the positive aspect to this, of how the good things and the good people that you've interacted with this life have shaped you as well. And, and, and the goodness that, that is, is in you through Christ that you've expressed, that the fruit of the Spirit comes through your life, that that is shaping others as well. And here's one of many passages I could have picked that reflects that truth. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Help shape other people 
by understanding that all of us are shaped. And um, the, the woman in the next door teaching the kids, and not Tina, but my wife, you, most of you have known her, some of you a long time. You know, she's a teacher. And, and other, people, other educators are very aware of how hard it is to be a teacher right now. And, um, oh, she just popped in right now. I'm glad you came in, honey. I'm talking about you. <laughs> so, she'll come home some days and need to vent about these kids. And they can be really hard. And, and, and just the, the sheer disrespect that so many kids have. Not all of them. But the, but the ones that have it, it's deep. And, and that's what you remember. That's what sticks with you. And I, and I don't blame her a bit for feeling that. But it, it's easy to say, yeah, they shouldn't be that way. What's wrong with them? Do you know what that solves? Nothing. I mean, sure, we, we, we should feel upset about it. We should feel you know, bothered by it. But, um, you know I, I know, I know Linda does this, and she's not the only one. And, and a lot of you do this in your own context, in your own work area, which has its own set of challenges. If you have challenging people, when you have challenging people, disrespectful people, hate-filled, angry people... If you can get past the anger, if you can get past the disrespect, if you can get past the obvious problems and, and how they can just drain the life out of you if you let them, and if you hear their story, that's when the compassion starts. Wow. That's how you were shaped. That's why you're shaped this way. That is a whole lot of pain. And even if you don't get to say those words directly to him or her, in your heart, you can feel compassion and act differently and think differently about him or her. That's why this is important today. That's why as you go through this series, this, this idea of that, that all of us are shaped by others. In good ways and in bad ways. So what kind of a shape maker are you going to be in the context of your, your home and your neighborhood and your church and your job and wherever else God leads you? What people are you going to run into have a really ugly shape right now, but they're loved too. They're loved by God. I don't mean ugly in appearance. I mean ugly in, in action and attitude. God loves that person as much as he does you. Lord God, help us to carry that, that level of love wherever it needs to go. Give us the strength for that. Help us to be honest with ourselves and with you about how the events of our lives and the people and have shaped us and sometimes in very hurtful ways, but always in some positive ways too. And we ask for the, the grace and the strength to send that message forth in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to share in the, the Lord's Supper now. Everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is, is welcomed. And um, of course, we remember that when Jesus gathered with his friends, his disciples, 
to celebrate the Passover. Mm-hmm. He took the traditional part of that dinner, bread, unleavened bread, and, and broke it. And made crumbs on the floor. That's okay. <laughs> and said, this is my body, broken for you. And he, he took the cup and passed it among them and said, take and drink, for, for this is my blood given for you, for the forgiveness of your sin. And he encouraged them and us to continue to do that until he comes again. And he is, today, excuse me, um, is Worldwide Communion Sunday. And so this Sunday, more than any other throughout the year, a couple other times that this is done, um, there is celebration of communion in probably just about every church in the world. There's some that might not be, but for the most part, most, most carry this through. That today is worldwide remembrance of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So we're going to begin to sing in a moment, led by the praise team. And um, as they sing, I welcome you to, to come forward and simply take a piece of bread and take a cup with you. Take it back to your seat. Sing along with the song, worship. Maybe you want to pray. Maybe you want to think about the shape that you're in, the, the things in your life that have shaped you and brought you to the moment that you're in today. And, and ask God to um, know that he loves you there and um, help you maybe to love yourself more, help you to, to affect those that are hurting around you and their shape isn't good right now and you want to help them improve that through love. Whatever it might be is on your heart and mind. I encourage you to do that. Once the song is done and everyone has their bread and cup, then we will partake together. <laughs>